When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it is episode 500 of the co-main event podcast proper this week. The 10-year anniversary of this show, the official 10-year anniversary, is coming up here in a couple weeks. Uh, You really can't overstate how old we are and how long we've been doing this, man. We've been doing this a long damn time at this point, longer than either of us expected to be at this still staring at each other via the, the internet recording this goddamn show longer really than at least one of us expected to be alive. I wouldn't have agreed to this if I'd known I'd still have to be in this, this mortal husk all this time. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's uh, bullshit, man. We've we've somehow turned around and become the old OGs of this shit. When I don't know, man. It just it's it's uh one of us should be dead or in jail or or tied up in a lawsuit. I don't know how we made it this far. Yeah, yeah. It it, it defies explanation. I think though. I mean, in honor of five hundred, five hundred is a big milestone, Chad. Like five hundred. That's not that's not four hundred. It's not three hundred. Five hundred. That's that's a lot of goddamn proper podcasts. Uh, what if you know it'd be crazy? What if all of our listeners sent us five hundred dollars? Ah, you know that's not celebrate. bad. It's not a bad idea. That is. Yeah, I think I think it'd be fun. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. You're coming dangerously close to Captain Kangaroo territory right now, telling all the little girls and boys at home to go go into their mom and dad's wallets and purses and send us a a little gratuity. What about if in honor of five hundred, we each knock out? 500 push-ups today okay now i say this i I should have mentioned this before i'm already on like 480 okay i I, I got up early i was doing i'm just doing my normal push-ups i didn't even realize it was 500 today yeah so you got some catching up to do but uh i'm sure people will enjoy watching you well i'm you know what i'll get the uh i'll get the live stream going and uh yeah just be here for the rest of the day remember when that one guy couple years ago did what like 5,000 push-ups in a in a morning or whatever it, it brief, briefly like seized the attention of the entire internet 
I do. That feels like a million years ago now. And we were still doing this show. <laughs> We've been doing this show since the goddamn Pleistocene era. Fucking dinosaurs walking around in the background of our early live streams. That's how long we've been doing it. It's a fitting, I guess, weekend for episode 500 of the co-main event podcast. Just chock full of MMA action. We got UFC 274 from down there at the Footprint Center in Phoenix, Arizona. That went down and really kind of wild, frankly, especially in the top three featured fights of the night. The two fights where I thought it was rife for an upset, both played out according to chalk and the one fight that I thought was a safe bet, a safe prognostication. The one fight where I looked at the whole damn card and like, well, she'll win for sure. Turned out to be an upset. So we've been doing this for 10 years. Still don't know that much about it. As it turns out, when you say upset, that is true. in at least two senses of the word, because the, uh, not only did the underdog win, but people were upset. Yeah. Caused uh, people were very upset. A fair amount of upset. Yeah. Um, You know, I know we got a lot to get through and everything, but I did want to let you know, Chad, I'm springing on you this. This is a surprise. I got us something special for 500. Um, I I pulled some strings. Mm -hmm. I went into the bank account. I I hope you're not mad. And I used some of the CME's funds. Metallica is coming by today. Okay. Metallica is going to be in studio here in my home office playing along for 500. Uh. They were supposed to be here like uh, 10, 15 minutes uh, before we started for, for a sound check, but they're pros, man. I mean, they're going to roll in here any minute. They don't need the sound check. Uh, so just um, we'll, have, we'll have to work out a signal. When I go, oh, shit, Metallica is here, then you'll know that's when Metallica is going to start playing. Okay, I think I can remember any that. Any minute. They should, they should come through the door. It's, it's going to be a fitting celebration for the 500th yeah. episode of the co-main event podcast to have this episode immediately taken down from the internet due to a copyright violation. I mean, Metallica is showing up to play their own songs, Chad. I don't... Somehow, I, I feel know. like Lars would still take issue with that. Listen, we worked out a deal. I, I sent the money over via wire transfer, uh, and I sent it to, like, we are definitely Metallica.net, so like, I'm sure it's genuine. It's just a matter now of playing the waiting game. Yeah. Wow. I hope you didn't spend too They're much. They're rock stars, man. They're not going to be on time. I hope you didn't lay out too much of the money for that. I mean, you know, I asked, what did, what will it cost to get Metallica in here to play our 500th episode? They said, how much money do you have? I told them uh, they came back with a price that was $10 less than that. So we still got $10 is what I'm telling you. That's but terrific news. We also got Metallica coming through, Chad. I feel like you're not excited about this as, as much as I thought you were going to be. I'm going to take a wait and see approach, and we'll see what happens. Okay. We'll see what happens during the next hour or so. Uh, I told them nothing after 2003. I mean that. I don't want to hear a single thing after that. That would be a solid, solid choice right there. I'm not saying yeah. that too loud because I don't know if they're already over there lurking around in the background. But uh, uh, you know what I say? This is the 500th episode of the co-main event. But that doesn't even count all the other shows that we do over on the Patreon where Ben Folks and I are party rocking all week with the Wednesday live chat, Thursdays doing the damn thing podcast, Friday's power hour. It's a good time. We have fun. It's just wall to wall for the most part, mixed martial arts with some other foolishness mixed in. People seem to enjoy it. We got three handy tiers of patronage available to you. So if you don't get your fight fix 
from this particular show, you can always go over there to patreon.com slash co-main event and join the team for a very reasonable rate. And you can just pass the pass the time all week long. Listen to us prattle on about various MMA related topics, some non MMA related topics, because it's, it's wild over there at the Patreon, man. Once you get inside the party, there's no rules. Uh, so we're going to spend the rest of this show talking about as many of these headlines from over the weekend as we can. There were numerous, numerous newsworthy happenings with UFC 274 and Bellator and PFL and all the other stuff that went down over the weekend. So we're going to squeeze as much of that as we can into this show, uh, guided by some listener mail. We got a a pile of listener mail over the weekend, a lot more than we've gotten in a while, which I think is interesting, uh, perhaps as a, as a very unscientific barometer for UFC 274, uh, and frankly, a barometer for how mad people were after it was over. There was some shit to talk about. There was some shit to discourse, and the the listener mail volume this week really reflects that. So we're going to try to use as much of that listener mail as we can over the next hour to guide us through discussions of these uh, hot topics in the world of MMA. And if anything we don't get to, we'll probably spread it out the rest of the week over on Patreon. So if you want to, if you if you got the money to spare, if you if you want to support the team over here, go over to Patreon.com/slash Co-Main Event and join the team over there. Uh, Okay, we're going to start here with the lightweight title fight. Charles Oliveira defeats Justin Gaethje. First round submission after three minutes and 22 seconds of fast and furious action. We got uh, a bunch of questions about this fight from listeners that we're going to get to, but I kind of wanted to just open it up before we start for uh, general insights and responses to what we saw out there in the cages. Everybody knows at this point, Charles Oliveira missed weight on Friday before this event, uh, perhaps owing to a poorly managed weight cut, perhaps owing to some uh, manner of skullduggery with the scale. We don't know at this point what happened, but Charles Oliveira was stripped of the title at the moment that his fight with Justin Gaethje began. Uh, Of course, he goes out there and wins, so we assume he will be the number one contender. The UFC has said he will be the number one contender coming into the next lightweight title fight. Uh, but the title will be vacant until that point. Now, one of the things we talked about, Ben, on Friday's Power Hour was that it wasn't necessarily that Charles Oliveira came in a a half pound heavy for this fight that worried us. The thing that worried us was how much did Charles Oliveira deplete his body in trying to make weight? And number two, how would he respond to sort of the psychological hurdle of missing weight, being stripped of the title, and then heading into what what promised to be a very tough fight against Justin Gaethje uh, in the immediate aftermath of all this kind of turmoil surrounding uh, his his abrupt the abrupt end to his lightweight uh, title reign. And as it turned out, I think a lot of that, while impactful, and it's going to uh, guide the 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 upcoming near future of this division. Some of it was noise, man, because Charles Oliveira did the MMA fighter thing of putting all that shit out of his mind and or using it as motivation. And he went out there and he put the pace on Justin Gaethje, survived some hard shots from Gaethje himself and uh, ended up, you know, once he stuns Justin Gaethje with his own punch and climbs onto his back uh, about midway through this first round, that's when you say shit got academic because you don't want Charles Oliveira on your back and Justin Gaethje, if he didn't know it before, found out the hard way. Uh, a, an impressive performance all the way around from Du Bronx, uh, the 
uh, unofficial champion, I would say at this point, still of this division. What was your what was your uh, your response to all of this stuff, Ben? Which turned out to be, uh, you know, w- w- crazier than we expected, even from from this fight. Well, Chad, the UFC lightweight champion has a name, yeah. and it's Charles Oliveira. Yep. I mean, that's a good line. Even if you have to run it through the interpreter for the, those of us uh, in the English-speaking world to get it, it's a good line. And I don't blame him for leaning on that. One thing I don't understand, though, about the whole stripping of the title thing. Why, if what we're saying is he's stripped of the title as a result of missing weight, why does it not take effect until the fight starts? ZUFC was very specific about that. that. He is the champion until the fight starts, and at that point... As soon as the referee says go, the title is vacant. What? What's that about? Because if you're stripped of the title for missing the weight, why doesn't it take effect as soon as you miss the weight? By that logic, could Charles Oliveira have pulled out of this fight, like, sick, and been like, you know, like Donald Cerrone the day of the fight, been like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm out. And they would go, okay, you're still the champion. And then we rebooked the fight and he could show up at a later date, still the champion, and try again to make the weight? Well, one thing we don't want to lose sight of, Ben, is that the UFC can do anything they want to with, with its titles. They have already made yeah, that see, clear. That's, that's where I was going to go next, but okay. They, yeah. they have gone to Congress and said these belts are ornamental. They really are an award that we give out for the best fighter of the night. They don't mean anything in in an, or in or above and beyond that. And so... You know, if they didn't want to take the title away from Charles Oliveira, you got to think, you know, they, they wouldn't have to. What, for the most part, what I think they're doing is is playing nice with the state athletic commissions to try to make all of this seem as above board and official as possible. And number two, like, I think not stripping the champion before the fight actually begins is just sort of a, a hedge in the direction of even more chaos, right? Like, you don't want to strip the champion and then... Justin Gaethje trips on a uh, some garbage in the back and falls down and hurts himself, and you got to call the whole fight off. I think what they're what they're trying to do, I think, is just uh, you know have a contingency plan for being able to call a do over. If for whatever reason uh, the fight okay. doesn't come off at all, you want to be able to say, "All right, we'll stick it on UFC 275, where uh, uh, Glover Tashira is expected to defend his title against Yuri Prochaska." And just sort of be like, oh, if we need to, we'll, we'll throw it on there if we have to, and then we can, we can call a full do over. So I think it's just like a, it's a technicality to guard against even more chaos. I think, kind of the same way I am guarding against such technicalities when I log on to ESPN Plus, say Thursday of Fight Week, and they're already trying to get me to buy the pay per view, and I'm going, oh no, my friends, it is Thursday. We are a long way from Saturday night. I know what can happen in this sport between Thursday and Saturday night. I know that the lineup you are telling me about on Thursday might not be the one you end up with on Saturday night. And here it ended up being quite the case. But yeah, okay, guarding against certain contingency I can see. But I guess my other point was going to be because the UFC can do whatever the hell it wants to with these belts. It does also mean that you could have been like, hmm. We think that there was enough confusion going on with this half a pound. It was only half a pound. It definitely didn't impact the fight itself. He's still the champion. We were putting the belt back on the guy. Like, maybe as soon as we get out of the Arizona jurisdiction, put the belt back on the guy. Something. I mean, because you can do whatever, you could do that. Yeah. Like, here's one where you the UFC has, in many ways, many times, waved its magic wand and made titles appear or disappear. 
It has just named people champions. It has stripped people of titles. It has waived drug testing requirements, like in the case of Brock Lesnar. It can do some of that stuff when it wants to. Here's a time where you could have been like the benevolent uh, fairy, the, the good fairy, wave the magic wand, put the belt back around the guy's waist, and everybody's kind of happy, yeah. you know? Yeah. Maybe you just don't want to set a precedent that yeah. that we're ballparking these weight limits, even though you know, another thing we talked about on Friday is is that there are specific situations where it seems like it might be better uh, to ballpark it a little bit on some of this weight class requirement stuff. But uh, to me, I come out of this event kind of reminded that Perhaps all of this noise around the the miss, missing weight of Charles Oliveira and stripping the title momentarily created a smokescreen that allowed me to forget how damn good that guy is right now. Yeah. Because, uh, he, you know, he, he made pretty short work of Justin Gaethje in a fight that I think a lot of people were expecting to be much longer, much more grueling. I think after he missed weight, clearly a bunch of money came in on Justin Gaethje because his underdog status... Uh, started to decrease by the moment after Charles Oliveira missed weight. And then Oliveira came out there, and aside from a couple of hard punches from Justin Gaethje, kind of handled him, handled him with ease. And especially when you get down into Charles Oliveira's world, uh, obviously things uh, things begin happening quickly, and he gets that stoppage. There's no doubt at this point in my mind that he's the best lightweight out there with, with the belt or without the belt heading into whatever the next fight will be. He's just grown into a, a an absolute monster at that weight, and a guy who is who is so tough to go out there and and as I said, handle his pace and also contend with the the, the well rounded skills. It's kind of incredible. You know what I was reminded of watching him on Saturday night was the heyday of the shooter box guys. Mm-hmm. Back in Pride, I was like, it was like this is shooter box guys if they had been technically a little tighter, like still aggressive. High pressure fights, guys who are going to go after you on the feet, but and in a way that can kind of sometimes trick you into forgetting that they also a lot of them have pretty good jujitsu. He was just technically better version of that in a lot of ways, and that's tough to deal with, man. A guy who can show up and who can really put that pressure on you because he knows he can handle it coming back, and he knows like that if you knock him down, that might just be the opening he needs. If you're if you're fool enough to follow him down there, that gives him so many advantages where he can fight so aggressively and and put you in an uncomfortable situation right away. That's really tough to deal with, man. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was just the presence of Shogun Hua on the undercard got me thinking about those shooter box guys. But I was just like, all you need is a bunch of guys going a in the corner every time he lands something. You know, maybe doing that doing the Vanderlei Silva glove roll and during the introductions, and he could he could fit right in. Yeah. Uh, Ben, we need to correct ourselves on a fact before we go any further. The last couple of weeks, uh, when we've been telling people again about our longtime sponsors, Fulton and Rourke, we have been referring to them as a, quote, men's grooming company, when in fact, Fulton and Rourke is for everyone, my guy. Anybody out there who wants to look good, smell good, be good, Fulton and Rourke is for you. It's not just for one kind of person, man, and the way that I know this for sure is that if I don't watch my own Fulton and Rourke product supply like a damn hawk, my wife will sneak in there and use it, man. She'll use the deodorant, she'll use the body wash, she'll use the face wash, whatever. The next thing you know, I'm standing in the shower, staring at the body wash container, thinking, damn, it feels like there was a lot more in here yesterday. We keep telling you about mm-hmm. it. We keep telling you, use Fulton and Rourke. 
It's going to have you walking down the street, Rose Namajunas style, shouting out, I'm the best everywhere you go. Tons of cool stuff going on right now over at Fulton and Rourke. If you want to check it out for yourself, CME listeners can save 15% on their first purchase with the coupon code if you nasty. That's all one word. If you nasty over there at FultonandRourke.com. Go check it out. I wanted to squeeze in these two pieces of listener mail about Charles Oliveira because they kind of, uh, they concern the same topic. So I'm going to group them together. The first one came in from your favorite refrigerator magnet. Okay. So that could be different for each of us. That's true. I might have one favorite refrigerator magnet. You have a different one. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Uh, it's got a little bit of like a Rorschach test here. I appreciate it. Your favorite refrigerator magnet writes, hate to do it, but is there a hipster argument that Charles Oliveira is already better than Habib? And if not, how much else does he need to do? Because keep in mind, Oliveira still has five years at least left to further his career. What say you? Then we got one here from Dan Alexander who writes, would it be fair to say that Habib is the greatest lightweight champion of all time, but God damn it, Charles is the most exciting. Charles lets his hands go and isn't afraid to put himself in danger's way. A vicious buzzsaw on the feet and a spider's web of bear traps on the ground. Uh, Habib, well, he just did Habib type shit. And we used to marvel at it, but I am spoiled. But am I spoiled in feeling a little bit shortchanged by his reign? Uh, a lot of people were talking about this in and around the fight. I kind of have a a, a, a a small inkling that we might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. Talking about Charles Oliveira as the, the best lightweight or the best UFC lightweight of all time or the best UFC lightweight champion of all time when he... Wait, the MMA community getting ahead of themselves? I know, right? Come now. Crazy. Uh, since he only has defended the title once successfully at UFC 269 in his defeat of Dustin Poirier, then he misses weight here against Justin Gaethje, gets stripped, comes back, beats Justin Gaethje, but now is going to be in a situation where you got to come back and uh, reclaim the title at a later date against someone else. I will tell you this, Charles Oliveira, like I said before, incredibly good at this point, incredibly hard to beat, an incredible uh, web of talents that, that other people are trying to contest with. And frankly, I wish Habib was around to fight him because that would be uh, an all-time great matchup, I think, at 155 right now. Uh, I don't want for us to, to totally uh, lose our minds and start talking about who's the greatest and all this other stuff. Well, Charles Oliveira is still kind of on the cusp of building his his resume as a champion, but uh, he's really damn good, and I would love it if Nurmagomedov was still out here to to fight him because that would be an incredible matchup. Yeah, yeah, it really would be. And I mean, I think sometimes we get carried away with these the best type arguments and debates we always want to jump straight to that you know it's just it's the same goat shit over and over again with us just like it's the same pound for pound shit over and over so i don't know how much it really matters especially at this point when the charles Oliveira era is ongoing yeah. so maybe wait until what we feel like we've got a full picture of it before we have to step back and feel like we need to decide where he fits in the lightweight pantheon but i do agree with the this comment from Dan Alexander that whether you think he's the greatest or not, especially after the reign of Habib, he does feel like an uncommonly exciting champion. And we've talked before about how it is tough to be and to stay an exciting UFC champion just because the evidence suggests that people, once they're there for a little while, once they get to the top, get that belt, they have to defend it, they tend to become a little more conservative just because 
you have everything to lose every time you step out there. And we've seen champions in the past who, especially when they can choose between an exciting path to victory that contains some risks and a safer path that is closer to guaranteed, they reasonably choose the safer path. It also tends to coincide with career longevity a lot more times. So I can understand why it happens that way. But with Oliveira, maybe part of the thing that makes him so exciting is that the the advantages of his fighting style are that it allows him to go out there and be a little bit more aggressive and put it on the line a little more. And the fact that it's almost it's basically an MMA meme at this point that he's going to get dropped yeah. at some point early on in a fight. And that's when you know that you have fucked up. When you go and you drop Charles Oliveira, you just sealed your damn fate. You know, it's kind of just the the kind of thing you would never advise to for a champion to have be his thing. And it's become his thing, but it makes his fights so much more exciting because there's a little bit of wobble on the tightrope. It's not the way it was with Habib or even the way it was with George St. Pierre all his years as welterweight champion, where it just felt like a systematic destruction, like you were going in there and fighting a cyborg that was analyzing your weaknesses and then attacking them. Charles Oliveira is going to go out there and give you a, a taste of a possible victory right at hand before he snatches it away from you. And that is a lot of damn fun to watch. We did get this question from noted patron of the podcast, Arouge Islam, who writes in and says, what are your thoughts on how the knockdowns that Chucky Olive suffers are analyzed by the MMA community? In a, in a vacuum, a knockdown in an MMA fight is a moment of incredible vulnerability that allows your opponent to go for the proverbial kill as you lay defenseless. However, when fighters da- knock down Chucky, they are terrified to follow up due to a crippling fear of getting caught in his ground game, his spider's web, to the point where it looks like he is playing possum even if he is hurt. Is it fair to characterize Chucky Olives as a vulnerable top-level 155-pound fighter by citing all the recent knockdowns when in his case, when in his case, a knockdown really isn't a knockdown? Down. Now you spoke to this a minute ago, uh, Ben, but this this in this fight it was very noticeable, right? Because Justin Gaethje floored him a couple of times with punches and wanted no part of the ground. Kept waving, yeah. waving him back up, telling him to stand up. And and this was maybe one of the first times I've actually noticed it in a fight where like that actually is a huge advantage, right? Because it's given Oliveira time to recover, time to get back up. He doesn't get swarmed uh, by ground and pound like a like a lot of fighters will in that same situation. And and it just it goes back to what I was saying about. Uh, his skill set, how good he is on the ground, how capable he is on the feet at this point. But yeah, man, if 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 your strategy is is to not follow him down to the ground, and it seemed clear that that was Justin Gaethje's strategy, thinking that he would eventually take care of him standing up. I mean, that cuts out a huge, a huge part of the game that is yeah. that is uh, dangerous for almost everyone. And if Charles Oliveira can completely eliminate that, that is a that is a fucking huge advantage for him. Well, you know, it was where it was really noticeable. It was in the second knockdown because the first one, Gaethje knocks him down pretty cleanly. The second one, it was like he hit him and maybe wobbled him or rocked him. And Charles Oliveira, I believe, went to throw like a front kick or something and then went down. It almost seemed like he was, I don't I don't want to say like flinging himself down, but realizing like, oh, he got me. I'm a little bit dizzy. And rather than stay here wobbled and maybe take a knockout shot uh, when I feel like I'm keeling over, I'll just go ahead and go to my back and see if he'll follow me there because I know I don't have to worry that much about it. I've got such a good jujitsu game off my back that I have the ability to threaten him if he chooses to follow me down here. And that's a real advantage. It's like being able to call your own kind of like uh, eight count 
get a moment to to set regain your wits get your legs back under you and then get back up and it buys you a couple seconds of just act time where there's nothing happening in the action you can recover and most people don't have that and so that is a real advantage that he has and yet it is a question about like how the knockdowns are seen by the MMA community because I feel like maybe even just prior to this fight we were more likely to see it as like well the knockdowns early on are a sign that he's he's vulnerable that he can be hurt uh, especially early in a fight that you can get to him uh, he's not, you know, if he's getting knocked down, it means you're landing clean blows on the guy. So that's something to, to build your, your hopes and dreams off of. If you're a contender looking for holes in the armor and yet it happens, it's happened enough times now that now it starts to seem like, okay, this is just part of a Charles Oliveira fight, man. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not great to get punched in the face so hard you fall down though i'm not gonna like totally no no it is not i'm not gonna discount that as a vulnerability even if even if charles Oliveira is able to negate some of that follow-up stuff man like uh he still feels somewhat vulnerable to me as lightweight champion just because we have seen over his last handful of fights that he does get hit and and uh while he is good enough to stave off some of the follow-ups that's still not that's still not it's not not worrying yeah I'll say that for him. We got this question from Taco John. Love good to hear from him. Love the chain, by the way. Love love the tacos yeah. from Taco John's. Uh, has Chucky Olives cleaned out the UFC lightweight division at this point and did it with only one title defense to his name? Uh, I don't think so, man. Like I don't think he's cleaned out the division, especially when you know Islam Mahachev and Benil Dariush, at least in theory, are still going to fight to produce a number one contender, and both of those guys uh, could be interesting fights for Charles Oliveira. You know, I don't think you can say anyone's ever cleaned out the lightweight division when pretty much everyone's still getting on the mic and calling out Conor McGregor in the year of our Lord 2022. I don't know how that (laughs) happens, but uh, he's always going to be kind of hanging around. The specter of Conor McGregor will be hovering over everything. Uh, Michael Chandler, even though he just lost to Charles Oliveira last year, I like if he keeps kick front kicking motherfuckers in the face and jumping on the mic and cutting WWE style promos, like you can't say Michael Chandler won't get another shot at the title. So like, I don't know that we can sit here and say he's cleaned out the division. Like that seems premature to say that in my opinion. Yeah. And the lightweight division does have the advantage of having a ton of interesting and talented fighters in it. And pretty much as soon as you feel like somebody is knocked out of the picture, somebody else is busy punching his ticket into it. Yeah. It's it's not like some other divisions that I will not name where it's the top two or three guys and then the talent just falls off a cliff. It, it kind of seems like at any given point, anybody in the top 10 is capable of putting together a nice little run and then being in title contention because there's just, just so many good, talented fighters there. We got this question from the off-white Power Ranger who writes, Pour one out for Justin Gaethje, the author of the Once a Coward, Always a Coward statement. I say, once a tapper in title fights, well, you know the rest. Nonetheless, does this mean that we get a Gaethje versus Poirier rematch, or perhaps McGregor sees Justin as proper game? Uh, The MMA community at large is not going to let you forget when you said some shit pre-fight. And then things get no. turned around on you inside the cage. We love, we love to do the "oh, you done fucked up now" thing. We love to do the Bill Duke thing. See, you fucked up now, didn't you? And Justin Gaethje did say that 
in a roundabout kind of way about Charles Oliveira. And then he goes out there and gets, gets tapped out via submission. Uh, but what about Justin Gaethje's overall prospects at this point in this division? Obviously he came over from what at the time was the world series of fighting as the undefeated lightweight champion debuted in the UFC back in 2017 at 18 and zero, lost a couple of fights early in his career there at the UFC. Uh, but then has gone five and two now in his last seven fights, including losses to Habib Nurmagomedov and Charles Oliveira, both of which for were for the title. Uh, he's m- mixing in wins over James Vick, Edson Barbosa, Donald Cerrone, Tony Ferguson, and Michael Chandler on that list. He's only 33 years old. But did this loss make you feel like Justin Gaethje's window to win the title is is closing up? Yes and no. But I, I do think that this was one of the better opportunities he's had. It felt like matchup-wise, there were some some openings for him here. But I also think that Justin Gaethje has the advantage of being a really exciting fighter who we think of as a guy who's guaranteed to give you a good time no matter who you match him against. And those guys tend to get more chances than the people who are not like that. I mean, just look at Derek Lewis's life as a heavyweight, for instance. Because when you are that guy who the UFC thinks, well, let's see, this one needs a banger. This fight card needs a banger. Justin Gaethje versus TBA is a pretty good choice for that. And so that kind of keeps you in the conversation. And from there, it's just a question of being able to Get a couple wins, maybe get a change of champions if you already have lost to the the reigning champ, or maybe somebody falls out of a fight at the last minute and you're willing to pick up the phone and say yes on short notice. And you, the UFC will keep you on that list of people they think of as a potential option there because they know that you're a fan favorite and that you produce exciting fights. When you have that in your back pocket, you you stay relevant longer i think you at least get the opportunity to ha- like be on that list of possible names they might call and that's not the case if you are a really plotting decision heavy fighter who people don't get that excited about then that those are the guys where they got to win eight in a row before their name even gets brought up yeah it should probably not come as a surprise that we got far and away the most listener mail about the rose nama Yunus. Carla Esparza strawweight title fight as much as we love to tell a fighter that they done fucked up and we remember what they had said we also love a judging controversy and we love to talk about the bad fights man kind of interesting when you have two bangers surrounding this in the Michael Chandler Tony Ferguson fight and also uh, in the Charles Oliveira Justin Gaethje fight that we just talked about that the lion's share of the listener mail is about Rose Namajunas and Carla Esparza. And I want to get into that right now. But again, as we did with Oliveira versus Gaethje, I want to get initial impressions here, right? Because this was not the fight that we expected. I don't think it was the fight that anyone expected. The UFC broadcast team went on at length during this this fight about how it was not the fight (laughs) they expected and how it was not a great fight. And it wasn't. And I think we got a question about that coming up in a minute. We can talk about whether it was as bad as it was made out to be on the broadcast. But Rose Nambiunas clearly came in with a game plan to not overextend herself in the face of Carla Esparza's takedowns. And Carla Esparza clearly came in with a plan to not overextend herself in the face of Rose Nambiunas's striking ability. And so you get uh, two people circling around, not doing a lot over the course of five rounds. And of course, it results 
in a fairly shocking Carla Esparza split decision win over Rose Namajunas. Maybe not shocking once you had watched the fight, uh, but coming into the event, I think we would have been shocked to know that Carla Esparza was going to emerge victorious in this fight. What were your overall thoughts, feelings, and hopes surrounding Rose Namajunas versus Carla Esparza? Well, by the end of this one, I did not have any hopes left. My hopes, dreams, ambitions were all destroyed by the 25 minutes of watching this fight. It, this was bad. This was a bad fight. It was an unpleasant experience to watch. It somehow felt like it was three hours long. Felt like watching The English Patient. I'm out there watching Rose Namajunas and Carlos Barza. And I just felt baffling every time we'd go back to the corner. Kind of both corners, but especially Rose Namajunas' corner. Because you're listening to what they're telling her and the positive feedback that she is getting and you're going, how are you guys not seeing this? How, when are you going to tell her that we have to amp up the output because we, we may be losing these rounds? That possibility just doesn't even seem like it's occurring to them for most of this fight. And it was such a disconnect between what we, the viewers, were seeing, what the commentators were saying, and then what her corner is saying. Yeah. Like, when you're interpreting the booze as a sign that you were doing a good job... I don't know how you get there in your mind. I don't I don't understand the the thinking that leads to that. Like if you told yourselves beforehand, here's what we want to do is we want to fight such a frustrating fight that people get physically mad at us for the fact that they have paid to see it. Like I don't know how you think that that equals a win for you, especially knowing the strengths and the weaknesses of both fighters here, I would say that if you're Rose Namajunas, you want it to be a little bit more of a wide-open fight with more action happening, more striking exchanges, because you feel like you're going to win those. And instead, it's like, hey, good job, you, you landed two jabs in that round, and you're feeling like that's that's good, that that's all it's going to take? Because that's, that's baffling to me. Yeah. You know, when it became readily apparent to me, especially now after watching 25 minutes of this thing, but pretty early on, that kind of Carla Esparza sort of had nothing for Rose Namajunas uh, in the striking or the grappling, really, because if the game plan was to steer clear of the grappling, we had several instances during this fight where Namajunas showed that, like, that Esparza couldn't really take her down. Like, those, you know, she got credit for a couple... Couldn't keep her there. Yeah, yeah. She got credit for a couple of takedowns on the score sheet, and some of those were official uh, takedowns. And everybody who listens to this show knows that there's no bigger grappling proponent in this sport than me. I love it. Uh, you know, you show me a fucking George St. Pierre fight and I'll be as happy as, as a clown watching this thing. Uh, a clown? Happy as a clown? But these... Clam? These Carla... As, happy as a clam. These Carla Esparza takedowns were meaningless to me because she didn't do anything with them. She she wouldn't even hold, keep the position. She would like take her down, and Rose Namajunas got right up. If anything, it seemed to me like Namajunas was foiling the grappling of Carla Esparza. And when you get to that point, when you see her try to take her down several times, and Rose pops right back up, at that point, I think you got to be like, okay, let's open this thing up a little bit. Well, yeah, because you say that that her wrestling didn't really do anything, and yet the fear of it seemed to dictate everything about the way Rose Namajunas was fighting. Yeah, and at some the, point, the, I think the, that the, fear has to dissipate when you're like, okay, yeah. we've seen the takedown. And you three or four times now you've popped right back up. So, you know, let's let's land some strikes on the feet. 
But yeah, it's like you could see her being concerned that, hey, I can't come forward throwing too many strikes because when I am coming forward and throwing, that's when she's going to look to level change and take me down. And then that would happen and she would end up shrugging off the takedown attempt. And instead of that reinforcing her confidence that, okay, now I can come forward and throw because I don't have to worry about it, it seemed to make her more reticent. Like, uh oh, see, that's exactly the shit I didn't want to have happen. So I got to like kind of go back into my shell now. And I guess I just, like, I understand what Rose Namajus was saying afterwards a little bit where she was like, I don't see how you win the title like that. And I was like, okay, fair, but I don't see how you defend the title like that. I don't see what you can point to and say, here's how I was winning that fight. Because all you're really doing is negating the stuff that Carla Esparza may be doing. And and she's just seemed to have a flawed concept of how the judging the scoring works when she said afterwards that what i don't get credit for defense no you don't you don't get credit for the 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 reward for defense is not getting punched in the face not getting taken down like that's just like anti-fighting that's if you got credit for defense you could go out there and just make sure nothing happened make sure there was no fighting that got that went on during that 25 minutes and you would be awarded the victory but that's not how it works like you have to actually be doing some stuff you can't just make sure that no stuff gets done whatsoever and it seemed like she was so concerned about what Carla Esparza would do that she forgot about all the stuff that she could do and I don't know if that's a a symptom of her still thinking about that first fight with Carla Esparza all those years ago and and thinking okay here's what I don't want to have happen if it's a maybe a consequence of her thinking Asparza has a narrow path to victory and it runs through the takedown and so I just have to stop that and then everything is fine and just forgetting that you actually have to do your stuff. It's not enough to stop her from doing her stuff. Or if it's just like some of that conservative nature we talk about when you are the champion where you think about like here's this thing I don't want to lose rather than going in there and thinking about here's the way I want to make sure I win. It just didn't seem like they were even approaching it the right way. And when you're hearing what they're saying to her in the corner, I just kept waiting for somebody to at least broach the possibility that even if we all think that we are winning these rounds, we're leaving it close enough that somebody else might think different. And it would sure help us if we were just doing a little more. Okay. And I, nobody even seemed to bring that up. Well, I do want to talk about that for a second. Let me run this question from our guy at pissed off lawyer who writes, if I didn't know better before listening to Pat Barry's corner advice to Rose Namajunas during Saturday's title fight, I'd think the factors used to judge fights under the unified rules of mixed martial arts are as follows. Number one, effectively keeping a wrestler at distance so they don't shoot for takedowns. Number two, effective stri- striking. Number three, effective grappling. Number four, aggression. And number five, octagon control. I would also think the first factor trumps all others, and you only judge the second and third criteria if the first factor doesn't produce a winner to a round. Please discourse. Okay. Did it kind of seem to you like something halfway weird was going on in the Rose Namajunas corner? Because you had Pat Barry out there talking about how great she was doing and you hear the fans booing, that means you're doing great. And there were a few times when it seemed to me like Trevor Whitman tried to subtly suggest that we do a little bit more out there. That Trevor Whitman kept kind of being like, okay, time to have fun now. Like, let's open mm-hmm. it up a little yeah. bit. Let's do some striking. And he wasn't. It's like. He was being very polite yeah, about like it. Like very diplomatic. But it kind of seemed like Trevor Whitman was sort of like, let's do some more stuff. 
and Pat Berry was just talking about how great everything was going. And that's got to be a weird dynamic, right? To be in the corner with the fighter's significant other. But like, obviously you guys, and you've been a part of this team for a long time. So I would assume uh, Rose and Pat Berry and Trevor Whitman and everybody else have a good working relationship and all that. But like, I don't know. I started to wonder, like, does Trevor Whitman not like want to step on Pat Berry's toes during the fight or like, cause he seemed to be trying to make that point, but he wasn't for whatever reason, it seemed like he didn't want to say it, or maybe he just feels like he knows Rose Namajunas' psychology. And so he wanted to keep it positive and like kind of lightly suggest that there'd be some more action. But for whatever reason, it just seemed like Trevor Whitman didn't want to come out and say, okay, uh, this is a close fucking fight. Let's, uh, let's, let's make sure that we're sealing these rounds. Yeah, I I mean, I think that we sometimes tend to put a little bit too much of a microscope on somebody when it's we know you're coaching your your significant other, your wife or your girlfriend or the times we've seen it where people are are coaching, you know, their son, their daughter or something because we are aware of that relationship and so we kind of have our antenna up for moments when the nature of that relationship might be affecting your ability to objectively coach them or help them in the corner and so i think we we pay sometimes more attention to that than is due but here is one where it did seem at times like i found myself wondering afterwards was this a symptom of you are very close to her and have this other relationship outside of this fighter coach relationship and that is impacting your ability to tell her the truth here about what's going on or your ability to see the truth about what's going on that you're not uh being objective enough to realize like Here's how the judges are going to see it. You just think like she's doing great because she everything she does is great in your eyes. Uh, I, I don't know if that's it so much or if it's just that, you know, maybe they felt like whatever they had talked about before the fight, we need to keep it positive with, with Rose in the corner. No matter what's happening in there, the worst thing we can do is let her start getting into a, like a negative loop in her own head. And so we go out there, we got to keep it positive. But it definitely seemed like there was just not much urgency from rose in the rounds and then you wouldn't really hear the urgency in the corner and it like here's one i know we often talk about open scoring every now and then here's one where i feel like this would have been a different fight if they had had open scoring if she or even if she had just been able to hear the the commentators like something or just been able to to realize this is not going as great for you as you think it is something to kind of like while the fight's still going while there's still time to, to change your approach if you realize these are actually going the other way because you're just not doing enough. And I think that if if somebody could have told her that during the fight, it might have made a difference. She might have changed her approach there. All right. I want to read this question from Scott, who writes, was the co-main of last weekend's pay-per-view actually the worst UFC fight of the last five years? The announcers were debating this question on air in rounds four and five as Rose and Carla circled around and around as each round ended with a single-digit strike total. Uh, Joe Rogan mentioned that, quote, this fight is losing fans. I can't think of a main or co-main in the last half decade that was worse. Thoughts? Uh, you know, like we talked about already, this was a bad fight. It didn't go the way anybody thought it would. Uh, but it, the, the, the broadcast struck me, man. It is rare to hear them crap all over a fight to the extent that they did during this one. And I think... You know, a lot of times I feel that in the instances where you could, where the US, UFC broadcast team is able to be frank and be honest, 
and talk about how they really feel about stuff is some of their best work. And I'd like Daniel Cormier and his broadcasting a lot, generally speaking, just because he's, you know, he's, he's fun to listen to. He's clearly having a good time out there. He, he, he speaks in many ways in the voice of a fan, even though he obviously has tremendous technical understanding and ability. Uh, and I think for the most part, he meshes fairly well with all the other members of the UFC broadcast team. A lot of, uh, Criticisms have been lobbed at Joe Rogan recently uh, during this time where he doesn't show up for all the UFC events anymore. And he's obviously got his own stuff going on over at Spotify and huge piles of money raining out of the sky for him to, uh, you know, just catch and, and keep. And uh, clearly he's he's picked a side in the culture war and all that stuff. And it's all kind of swirling around Joe Rogan at this point. Uh, his, his UFC broadcast stuff is is not as indispensable to me as it used to be. And I thought this was a weird one where he and Daniel Cormier and John Anik, in a way that you don't oftentimes hear from him, uh, were very upfront and frank and honest the entire time about how bad this fight was uh, in a way that kind of snowballed over the, the 25 minutes. And it was like kind of all they could talk about the whole time yeah. and well they weren't giving them much to talk about in the cage they had to talk about something but there were times when people landed significant strikes when they kind of missed it and didn't talk about it because they were too busy talking about something else or or talking about what a terrible fight it was etc etc i i don't know how you would feel about the fight if you watched it without the broadcast without the commentary on it but this was one where i feel like the tone that they set during the broadcast you know took an already bad fight and like called everyone's attention to it in a way that uh, kind of became this thing that, again, we got more mail about than anything else after this event was over. Right. But I mean, haven't we in the past criticized them for uh, being too much or too obviously UFC employees who are trying to put over the product and uh, try to make it feel like you made a good decision and paying for it? Because I think that that's worse. I, I That's one of the things that bothers me whenever I'm reminded that, oh, yeah, this is this commentary in this sport works differently than in other sports because the people who are doing the commentary on the, the product that the UFC is selling us also work for the UFC. It's like the, the advertisers are the ones telling us about the product. And so uh, that, that's different than hiring, you know, a, a third party who hires their own commentators to go out there and call it. And so I, I'd rather have the brutal honesty than have them out there trying to put lipstick on a pig. And I, I mean, I do think the other thing that we have criticized, especially Joe Rogan for in the past is choosing a narrative early on in a fight and then refusing to budge from it. Although in this one, there wasn't a ton of reason to budge from it. I get what you're saying that, you know, we might see some like a little bit of an increase in action, but it's not like the tempo really changed that much in this fight over the course of it to where you would have to alter everything you'd said about it previously. It still was not a good fight. I I've sometimes thought like maybe one thing we need to do is to come up with a hierarchy of commentary signifiers that the fight is not great. For one thing, when they start talking about other fights that they have seen, that's already a bad sign. When they start talking about other fights they have seen that were also bad, that's a really bad sign. They get to a point we're just basic we're just like naming guys. <laughs> just naming naming fighters that we know of. You know, like that's where we're just reaching for anything to fucking talk about. And that's a sign that it's not going great. And honestly, I think in these situations, that's where you do benefit from having 
a retired fighter and a retired, you know, great fighter in Daniel Cormier there on the, the broadcast table. Because if it's just Rogan and Anik sitting there, somebody could reasonably say, oh, well, you guys think it's so fucking easy, huh? To go in there with a title on the line and fight for 25 goddamn minutes inside a cage and make it all so exciting while worrying about not getting your whole shit broke. You guys think it's so easy from there uh, in the same black dress shirt that you've been wearing for 15 years, Joe Rogan. It seems so easy from your position, doesn't it? And to have Daniel Cormier there, who has actually been in there, done it, had some great fights, to say like, hey, look, you got to do more than this. This isn't. This is not you. You fulfilling the terms of your job uh, when you show up and you fight like this. He's the guy who who has a a platform to to stand on when he's talking about something like this. Uh, and I'd rather have them be honest about that than try to convince me that it's not as bad as the fans in the arena are acting like it is. Yeah. Except, crapping all over a bad fight is in and of itself a UFC talking point. I mean, what what are the alternatives? Just be like, uh, okay, we're not having a great time here, but it could be worse. Like, I don't. I mean, I do. It's not a great sign that early on when you start talking about is this the worst fight we've ever seen, or merely one of the worst fights? And yet, don't act like you weren't sitting there watching this and and having some Francis and Ganu, Derek Lewis flashbacks, having having some Anderson Silva in those doldrums years flashbacks. I mean, it, it was frustrating in much the same way as those were because you were like, oh, here's one where he came in there expecting one thing. We're getting a completely different thing. And the thing we're getting isn't great. Yeah, it's a, it was a bad fight. There's no doubt about that. But also, it's sports. Sometimes it's not great. And this was the intersection of the sports and entertainment, the weird mashup of sports and entertainment that combat sports is because you're asking people to pay money to watch it. And that in and of itself creates this expectation of, of entertainment. And it starts to put expectations on the athletes that you don't get in other sports where people aren't paying extra to watch, to watch the good shit. Like if, you know, if the Super Bowl cost an extra 75 bucks or whatever to watch it, then maybe we would all uh, expect it to be more exciting than it is when it's oftentimes a blowout. But the truth is if you're having legitimate sports, and you're not fixing the endings like they do in, in professional wrestling. If things aren't predetermined, sometimes you're going to get a stinker. And it's because the two athletes show up with different game plans and they stick to it. And should should Rose Namajunas or Carla Esparza have, have changed that and reacted to that at some point during this fight? Probably. And I think your point about open scoring is an interesting one. And I think your point about, hey, man, if this one had, had been at the apex and Rose and Carla could hear Daniel Cormier, and Joe Rogan and John Anik kind of dumping on them the whole time they were out there, would it have been different? And I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, but it just doesn't seem like at some point I feel like you stop serving the, the, the actual viewer. If all you can talk about is how shitty it is. Like you can make the point yeah, that it's well, shitty, I mean, but you can also say like it's shitty because of the specific matchup of styles that we have here. And we didn't, anticipate that coming in but clearly that's that's what's happening here clearly the two strategies from these two fight camps coming into this fight is conspiring to make not a scintillating sporting event but sometimes that's the fucking roll of the dice when you're having real fights man that's true but and but i also think that's an area where combat sports is unique from other sports because it's like you know you might show up to watch a baseball game 
and it's very slow, or it's a pitcher's duel, and it's not the most exciting game. But you don't show up and be like, these people failed to produce a baseball game here today. Like, you know, maybe you didn't have the greatest time. Maybe it wasn't like a just back and forth uh, home run derby. But they still, they they played a baseball game by the end. But this one, fighting is that kind of thing where if... Sometimes people come in with those conflicting game plans and uh, being overly conservative in their approach. A fight may not actually feel like it happened. And that is something unique here that you just do not get in other sports. We got this question from Darlene, which was after the snooze fest of a title fight for the women's 115 pound title. Who are your top contenders? Uh, Lupi Gudinez put herself firmly in the conversation after her performance on the prelims. Her wrestling is a problem for the division. If you don't know, her two sisters are also elite wrestlers who both medaled at the Pan Ams this weekend. Who would you like to see her fight next? Uh, I do want to talk about that for a second, but I also want to ask the question of what happens now in and around the 115-pound title picture. Because ordinarily, you get a fight with this kind of weird outcome you might think about booking a rematch and I don't know if the UFC is no. going to consider a rematch or not. Like they kind of Dana White has already said, no, who wants to see that again? Right. So, so yeah. is this, if you're the UFC, are you trying to get Zhang Wiley on the phone as fast as humanly possible to kind of get your, get your, your capital G girl back in the mix here with the uh, suddenly having Carlos Barza as champion? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking this afterwards that when you see Carlos Barza as champion and you see her win the belt that way, if there were a whole bunch of women in the strawweight division who are just rubbing their hands together being like, okay, business has, has is about to pick up. Things have opened up a little bit here. And I saw, you know, took really no time at all. I saw Marina Rodriguez getting on the Twitter afterwards and being like, hey, you know who now has the longest win streak in the division it's me and i don't know if that was even technically true but uh she's like hey i've won four straight like put me in there i i'm i'm ranked uh you know i think like at least in the top five uh get me in there now uh as if we're throwing the door wide open for people and i also thought that the ufc was probably thinking you know what hey we've been looking for that foothold in china Zhang wiley was feeling like a a pretty good bet there if Rose isn't the champion anymore. You don't have to come up with a, an excuse for why we're giving Zhang Wiley another title shot at her. Then, the, hey, throw her in there and let's see if we can get back to making that uh, that that sweet money with a big a potential big star over in China. So I'm sure for the UFC, that is the silver lining on this one is that, okay, wasn't a great fight. Carlos Barza isn't exactly an electrifying personality to have as your champion, but it does open you up to some new matchups that you can make here. We got a question at some point that I, I can't find on my list now, so I apologize to whoever sent it in, but uh, pointing out that Rose Namajunas finished in first place in the fan voting for the Crypto.com fan bonus of the night where you get $30,000 extra paid out in bonuses in, in Bitcoin, uh, which is an odd result considering how bad this fight was and how, how much everyone seemed to hate it and how it was an odd performance from Rose Namajunas and her corner. And like, I can't explain that voting aside from the fact that Rose Namajunas is obviously one of the more popular stars in this division. And maybe some people voted before the fight. I don't know. I don't know how yeah. that works. I think that if you're, if you're looking for something that explains it, I would ask, when did the voting open? Because 
especially we we talked about the, just doing this at all felt like a popularity contest. And if you open it up while the event is ongoing and before some of these fights have happened, then there might be some people just see it and be like, Rose is my favorite fighter on this card. I'm voting for Rose. Yeah. And then the fight happens and you go, oh, okay, wait a minute. I mean, this is why, Chad, again, I will say, if we're going to decide in advance who we want to win these bonuses, let's look at the prelims. Some people who could use that extra money. Let's, I, I, damn it. I said we all needed to vote for Loopy. Yeah. Yeah, I might want Loopy, Journey Newsome, you know? Uh, and Shogun. I believe those were those were my picks because you know for fucking just old school fun. Let's give it to Shogun. But uh, I think that either, I mean, for one thing, the whole doing this fan voting thing. The goal here is you know to get people cell phone numbers and shit like that, right? Like it's not it's not like we really we desperately need to take the pulse of the people on this because if it was, then we just open up the voting after the fights were over and everybody had all the information to work from. But like we want it open as long as possible because we want to get those cell phone numbers, people to be sending off those texts and however they're voting. So yeah, I don't know. The the whole thing is a little bit weird, but it is funny when you see the results afterwards and you're like, okay, so the person who Lost an all-time stinker as the top vote-getter? Yeah. That's, that's curious. Yeah, the other two uh, placers were at least uh, Michael Chandler and Charles Oliveira, who both won their fights. So there was that. Uh, but yeah, Rose Namunas, first place for the uh, for the Crypto.com Bitcoin bonus. I guess we can take some solace in the fact that it's not real money. So <laughs> there you go. All right, I do want to talk about uh, Tony Ferguson and Michael Chandler in some of the time that we have left here in the show. Obviously, a tough result for Tony Ferguson and a big win for Michael Chandler. And we had talked on Friday's Power Hour about the odd slash illuminating interesting fight week that Tony Ferguson had had leading up to this fight, kind of airing some of his grievances with the UFC, some of the ways that he felt like he had been mistreated during his career and during this lengthy break between fights for him. Uh, And then he came into the fight and for at least one round. I don't know whether or not he won the first. I think there's probably some some different ideas about the scoring of the first round of, of this fight. But like he looked very much like the Tony Ferguson of old out there, uh, dropped Michael Chandler at one point with the strike, then got taken down with a nice double leg by Michael Chandler, but did a lot of damage from the bottom with elbows and things like that. Seemed to bust up one of Michael Chandler's eyes. And then when the first round was over, got up smiling and laughing in Tony Ferguson fashion, like, oh, we're having fun now. Like this, yeah. now we're, now this is interesting to me. You've got my attention, Michael Chandler. And then, of course, Chandler comes out, knocks him out 17 seconds into the second round with one of the most vicious uh, and surprising front kicks in the history of the sport and terrifying with the way Tony Ferguson dropped onto his face and was out cold for what seemed like forever, a matter of minutes, but but seemed longer when it was actually happening. And in a way we've never seen happen to Tony Ferguson before. Uh, So I don't know where you want to start with this one, but it was a uh, it was certainly a, a result that we will remember in the in this fight between Michael Chandler and Tony Ferguson as it will probably be on the short list for a knockout of the year contenders here but what what struck you the most no pun intended about uh, Michael Chandler and Tony Ferguson yeah you're right that it was something to see Tony Ferguson get up after that first round and be like okay looked like he was enjoying himself again and looked like he and frankly during a lot of that first round you went, okay, that guy's still in there. Yeah. The, the, the old Tony Ferguson is still, there. there's still some remnants of that guy in there. Um, 
And then, out of nowhere, I mean, who had Michael Chandler via front kick KO? Not even Michael Nobody Chandler, according to his post-fight no. interview. He was sort of like, <laughs> we don't even train that that much. But I saw it, and I did it, and it worked out. Yeah, you just don't think of that being something that's in his game. Then he's going to go in and hit, what, like four backflips in a row afterwards while Tony Ferguson uh, is looking like he has been shut off in the Matrix. It's like, hmm. Maybe now is not the backflip time, you know, or do your one backflip and then let's move on. But we we're going in there and uh, really it was is backflip city. Um, I I found myself thinking, you know, on one hand feeling really bad for Tony Ferguson because you go out there, you're finally looking like you're putting together the kind of performance we haven't seen from you in years, and then that happens, which just reminds you how cruel this sport can be. That even when you're, you're putting all the pieces together, you've done everything right in training, and you're going in there, you're looking good, you still can just you know get hit with a wrecking ball out of nowhere that you didn't see, and it ends your night, and then that that's the thing people remember about it afterwards. So that's heartbreaking, and that's the specific way that fight sports is often heartbreaking. But I found myself thinking a lot about Michael Chandler's career arc. Yeah. Because man, that guy, it feels like he has lived a few lives already. And for the UFC to go out there and pick him up, we were kind of wondering at the time, did this opportunity come too late for Michael Chandler? Did it come too late for him to really do anything with? And is he just going to show up in the UFC as a shadow of the guy he was when he was Bellator champion? I mean, I still remember, I'm so old, I still remember when he got the stool pulled out from under him, <laughs> fighting Brent Primus. Uh, and then you think about the, he's, he's, even the ones that he loses, he's not really had a bad fight in the UFC. He has seemed like Mr. Action, like guaranteed good time in all of these fights, uh, and has really just let it all hang out uh, coming into the UFC at this late stage in his career or at least what seemed like it was going to be a late stage in his career um and now it seems like a damn good pickup by the ufc to go and get that guy when you could well yeah you talk about guys who have established themselves as fun action fighters and they're going to get more chances than maybe guys that fight other ways i think you got to put michael chandler firmly on that list at this point just because of how yeah. things have gone he's only two and two in his UFC career but every one of them pretty much has been a fun knockdown drag out affair and uh, you know, I'm, you talk about how old you are. I'm so old. I remember being on press row at a UFC event in 2011 when suddenly people started scrambling around trying to get Michael Chandler versus Eddie Alvarez, uh, for, yeah. in Bellator, like on a live stream so we could watch it on press row because that's how, that's how crazy it was. And word was getting around online and people were like, Oh fuck, we got to watch this. Even though we are at a UFC event, that was 11 years ago or something at this point. Uh, I have to admit, I I it hit me right in the feels as a dad when uh, Michael Chandler is up there looking around for his son and then starts crying when he sees him and they bring his son up into the cage and he's wearing the earmuffs because it's loud in there. Yeah. And like Michael Chandler is having this great moment and his son is like, are you okay? <laughs> and Michael Chandler has to be like, yeah, I'm okay. I was a little bit... I'm starting to get a little dusty at my house when I was watching that <laughs> exchange between Michael Chandler and his son. Uh, but yeah, like, uh, and then, you know what? Clearly, I, I think if Michael Chandler and I had to hang out in a room together, we would discover that we have some differences, that we yeah. have personal differences. We might not be the best of friends, but you talk about a guy who at 36 years old clearly understands the opportunity that he has 
and has decided to make the most of it on all fronts to the extent that he can because he is fighting, uh, letting it all hang out, turning in these exciting performances. He's come out on top of a couple of them. And when he gets the chance and they put a microphone in front of him, you can tell he's thought about it. You can tell he has prepared some material and he is ready to like essentially cut a professional wrestling style promo uh, where he yells about how uh, he wants to meet Conor McGregor at 170 pounds, which I thought was kind of brilliant. And then I believe he signed off with God bless. See you at the top, which that's his uh, thing. He's see you at the top, which is how I'm ending all my emails for the rest of time. My new uh, block at the bottom of my emails just says, God bless. See you at the top. It's, I thought it was a, a great performance all the way around for Michael Chandler, not the least of which the shit that he said on the microphone when it was done. No, I mean, he's been on point in that regard for ever since he showed up in the UFC, yeah. right? Like yeah. he, he's, he's done a pretty good job no, of maximizing. Like said, he came in with a plan. He's like, I'm 36 years old at the time, what, 34, whatever. I'm going to make the most of this in every way I can. Yeah. And Honestly, he really has, and I can see why he is a really valuable free agent pickup to the UFC because he's good in interviews. He can uh, he he puts forth a, a very like polished exterior, and then he goes out there and has wild and crazy fights, and is at this point especially not holding anything back in there. And so, uh, especially in the lightweight division where there's so many interesting possibilities you can make. Michael Chandler versus TBA also seems like a pretty good bet. Yeah. And you could just match him up with whoever you got out there. Yeah. And you're going to get a good time. Conor McGregor going to jump on Twitter and basically be like, I don't want that smoke in his Conor, very Conor McGregor way. Like I can see us fighting at some time, young man. That's like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> not in a hurry to make it happen. Not- How about this? This one from Mr. Burrito Bull. Can yeah. we read this one before we get out of here? Well, I think we should, before we do that, let's put these two together about Tony Ferguson. Professor Oak wrote in and said, uh, basically, rest up Tony forever changed after the Gaethje fight and now this. That being said, do we all agree that he is still top 15 quality and would watch the shit out of Ferguson versus Bobby Green? Uh, cosign. And then uh, J-Dog wrote in to say, what's to come of Tony Ferguson after getting front punted in the face by your boy Iron Michael Chandler? Personally, I begin to drool at the thought of a Bobby Green versus Tony Ferguson fight. Keep in mind, this is the this is only the first true knockout loss of Tony Ferguson's career. Uh, this is interesting because like we had we had kind of written off Tony Ferguson essentially with the the three losses in a row coming into this fight it's tough as we already talked about to see him get knocked out in this fashion not the ending anybody really wanted to see for a guy like tony ferguson but also just watching him fight in the first round looking going blow for blow with michael chandler for the most part during the first five minutes did you come out of this weirdly enough thinking like okay in some ways tony ferguson is sort of still still viable yeah yeah i mean if you just looked at what you saw from him in that first round there's signs of there's reasons to be encouraged there by that tony ferguson doesn't look like he's totally done yet and then you just get caught with that one out of nowhere that could kind of happen to anybody anybody gets kicked in the face like that you're getting knocked out doesn't matter who you are so it wasn't the kind of knockout where you look at it and you think oh maybe tony ferguson's chin is gone he just got yeah blasted unbelievably hard in the face by that kick yeah, and I was thinking about that specifically because you see that clip of Chuck Liddell talking to him when he got out of the cage mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to console him a little bit. And I don't know exactly what he was saying, but 
the the thought I had is remember when we knew Chuck was done at, with that Shogun fight where it was, you know, Dana White made a big deal about how he promised me, you know, he was going to train hard, he wouldn't be in the clubs, and he did all that stuff, and he got himself in good shape. And then it was kind of like not even a super hard blow, the kind that the Chuck Liddell of five years earlier would have eaten easily, and it put him to sleep. And that, when that stuff starts happening to you, that's when you really need to reevaluate. And here was a different one, where it was like he was looking good, he was landing good shots, he took some some good shots too, but he was still in that fight, and then just out of nowhere, you get hit with the kind of thing that's going to knock anybody out because you just, you know, comes up out of the below your vision. You don't see it and it nails you super hard in the chin. You're, you're done. And yet knowing the way this sport does, by the time his next fight gets booked, people are going to come around here and be like, look at all these losses in a row that Tony Ferguson has. And that's going to put even more pressure on him that, okay, now the next one you got to win. Uh, you, you really can't afford another loss. It's already looking kind of glum. And yet, because he has enough of a name and that he is an interesting enough matchup, it's probably not going to be too many easy fights out there for Tony Ferguson. Whoever they give you, whoever they think it makes sense for Tony Ferguson to fight, even with this list of losses, is going to be a somebody. Yeah. So uh, it, that's that's a tough place to be, especially at, what, 38 years old. Yeah, I think Bobby Green would be a heck of a fight. Like, that doesn't, I don't, that idea doesn't bother me at all. Uh, let's do this question from Mr. Burrito Bowl that you mentioned where he writes, I was disappointed to turn on my legally purchased UFC 274 pay-per-view only to see I'd already missed the Joe Lazon Cowboy Cerrone fight. Damn it. No matter. I'll watch it later. Fast forward to later. Where the hell is that fight? Damn ESPN plus check the fight card. No fight relief. It must be happening on a different card. Nope. Did it already happen? Nope. Canceled. What? What's really going on? He writes. So a little, uh, look into Mr. Burrito Bowl's life there, how his evening went. But uh, yeah, this was disappointing, man. Uh, do you have any idea, Ben, how bad the food poisoning must have to be to keep Donald Cerrone from getting in the cage? Like, he must be, he must have been locked up in the bathroom all night because it takes a lot to get Donald Cerrone to not make the walk. Yeah. Some tacos is what I, I believe what I heard. Some tacos were to blame, okay. which, you know what? The tacos have given us so much enjoyment in this life, and then they're going to go and take this from us. Tacos giveth it's and just, tacos taketh away, my friend. Yeah. Uh, but afterwards, you see Donald Cerrone saying that, you know, he, he making his apologies and thanking everybody for understanding, but also saying that he feels like he's got two more. Yeah. He wants to hit 50, and then he's done. Do you believe it? I mean, he was having an emotional week to begin with, right? Fighting Joe Lozon. They asked him about his son in the pre-fight press conference, and he kind of teared up and started crying, uh, talking about what it would mean to him to fight in front of his son, who is now old enough to kind of be cognizant of what is happening, and then to not get to fight via some manner of, of food poisoning must have been a huge emotional blow for him. And so I feel like any time in the midst of these kind of fight week emotions, whether you fight or not, and a fighter starts talking about when they will draw the line and when they're going to be done, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. On top of that, it's Donald Cerrone who's saying this, who like no matter how many times that guy says he's going to walk away or set a date or set a milestone that he wants to walk away, uh, it's hard to imagine him being able to resist the siren song of the cage or ring or whatever it is for the rest of his life, especially if people are going to be making lucrative offers for him to come and do it. Uh, 
So I would love to think that Donald Cerrone has, you know, this specific plan for two more fights, hit 50 and then be done. But I think in this situation, I'm just going to kind of wait and see, considering all of the extenuating circumstances that, that are going on around this announcement. Yeah. 50 is a nice round number. So that's cool and everything. And yet Donald Cerrone seems like he's going to need, he's going to need that juice in his life somehow. If he didn't get it, if he didn't get that, that, you know, action fix from fighting, then he's going to need to look into becoming a professional bull rider or something. Yeah. You know, something, something's got to fill that void. Yeah. All right, that's going to wrap it up for us this week on The Proper. Like I said, we'll be over on the Patreon page the rest of the week talking about anything at UFC 274 that we didn't get to, probably talking about some Bellator stuff, talking about some PFL stuff, looking ahead to this week's UFC Fight Night event where you're going to have Yanni Blackjacks out there, Jan Blahovich against Alexander Rakic in the main event. So we will be talking about all that stuff for the rest of the week. Uh, patreon.com slash co-main event check us out over there or just tune in next week for episode 501 lord will and then the Greek don't rise assuming we both made i yeah. guess metallica didn't make it huh that's weird i was just i was looking at the door just expecting any minute metallica was going to come walking in here i'm sure they got a good excuse i mean you know metallica is not just going to no show you yeah probably something must have happened those tacos donald cerrone yeah in any case thanks for listening everybody for right now we are done we are through we are out huh okay checking my email now for one thing uh you wouldn't guess it but uh, metallica's email is just metallica at gmail it just says car trouble lol I'm sure they'll, they'll, they'll refund, but that's, that's a given, right?